0: This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome, welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. It's April, and as we begin exploring the history of sports and their impact on American history and culture, that's going to be the focus of a new series on the American Tapestry Project, Americans in their Games, Sports in American History and Culture. Anyways, I thought on this Easter Sunday, this program first aired on WQLN-MPR on Easter Sunday, April 9, 2023. I thought it might be fun on this Easter Sunday celebrating life's renewal in the spirit of renewal. Well, in the spirit of renewal to celebrate the new baseball season by revisiting the best of baseball music. Baseball, more than any other sport, has a rich musical heritage. From 1858's Baseball Polka to 1908's Take Me Out to the Ball Game, to 1985's John Fogarty classic, Centerfield, with, as they say, multiple, multiple stops along the way. What's the greatest baseball song? What light does baseball music shed on American culture, on the American Tapestry Project? What light does it shed on Americans and their games? Today, surveying baseball music, will answer those questions, or at least point in the direction an answer might be found. Doing research on sports in American society for that new series I mentioned, Americans and Their Games, Sports in American History and Culture, while doing that research, I rediscovered the rich trove of baseball music. Baseball music, we'll learn, speaks to many threads in the American tapestry. At times, in its joyous exuberance, it speaks to freedom pursuing success. At others... It speaks to freedom's fault lines in songs about the great African-American players who integrated baseball in the 1940s and 1950s. At still others, it shines a bright light on the immigrant's tale and how baseball and sport in general served as a way for new Americans to assimilate into American society. As always, that school bell signals a sidebar a special topic we'll explore. Today's special topics will be short, there's a lot of music in this episode, but we'll look into at least two sidebars. Who was Van Lingo Mungo, and what has been the impact of women's softball on Major League Baseball? Remember, the bell signals a brief aside we'll explore. Of America's four major spectator sports, baseball, football, ice hockey, and basketball, nothing approaches baseball's cultural impact. Regarding books, although it is not listed on the NFL's list of its top ten football books, I think Tom Callahan's Johnny U: The Life and Times of Johnny Unitas, the best football book, and Adrian Wojnarowski's The Miracle of St. Anthony, the best basketball book. The best football movie of all time is either Friday Night Lights or Remember the Titans. And I don't think I'll get much pushback if I say the best basketball movie of all time is Hoosiers. Well, the best baseball movie, well, simply there are too many to list. Similarly, neither football nor basketball music approaches baseball's rich cultural trove. If you Google best football music, you'll get a longish list of songs about international football. That is, soccer. For American football, the list primarily consists of either pre-game pump-up music, like Sunday Night Football's theme and Monday Night's football theme, and or college fight songs like On Wisconsin Hail the Victors or Notre Dame's Victory March. Basketball, however, has an evolving musical library that might one day challenge baseballs in the richness of its offerings. It tilts young, as you might suspect, and it tilts towards the present with a definite multicultural and minority emphasis. It includes songs like "Shacks." I Know I Got Skills, the venerable Sweet Georgia Brown of Harlem Globetrotters fame, and ranks at number one, to my mind, a dubious but perhaps apt choice, John Tesh's Roundball Rock, the old NBA on NBC theme. Baseball music, however, to borrow a cliche, covers all the bases. It comes in two big buckets walk up music and music singing songs of the game and the society it reflects. I guess our walk up music is Anton Dvorak's String Quartet No. 12. Walk up music is probably best described as a subgenre of baseball music, but it deserves a brief mention of its own. Walk up music serves a clear cut purpose. As Bonnie Sternberg says at Inside Hook, it's meant to whip the crowd into a frenzy as a player makes his grand entrance while simultaneously getting him psyched up and intimidating the opposing team. More precisely, it is the music a batter chooses to have played as he approaches the batter's box. It's meant to amp him up and psych out the opposing pitcher. There is a disagreement, however, about how walk-up music originated. Rather than a batter approaching the plate, Sternberg says it began in 1972 with Yankees reliever Sparky Lyle taking the mound to Pomp and Circumstance. I prefer Peter Gammon's take on the issue. He also says it began in 1972, but he quotes Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Catt, who told him it began in Chicago when White Sox organist Nancy Faust played Jesus Christ Superstar every time Dick Allen came to the plate in his 1972 American League Most Valuable Player season. Sternberg's list of walk-up songs and the players who use them slants heavily to the present. Many fans' favorite, however, is Wild Thing for Ricky Vaughn, entering from the bullpen in the movie Major League. personal favorite take on the entire walk-up genre, however, did not occur at a baseball game, but at a college graduation when ESPN's Chris LaPlaca had the Ramsey Lewis trios wade in the water played as he approached the podium to deliver the commencement address at St. Bonaventure University's 2017 graduation ceremony. He said it was probably the only chance he'd ever get to have walk-up music played for him. LaPlaca's speech, He is a St. Bonaventure alumnus, is the best graduation speech I've ever heard, and I've heard over 60 of them. Here's the beginning of that speech.
1: In baseball, they play what's called walk-up music as a batter approaches home plate. The music often reflects the personality of the batter. I think walk-up music is cool, and I felt like today would be the only time in my life I could use walk-up music for anything. Now, I don't know how many other commencement speeches have begun or ever will begin with walk-up music, but this one did. Message number one, sometimes you just have to go for it. In my defense, the song, Wait in the Water, was played before every Bonnie men's home basketball game my four years here. It served two purposes. One, it got the players revved up, ready to go. And two, same thing for the fans, and I'm really hopeful it has the same impact on all of you, because let's be honest, I know what I did the night before I graduated from this magical place. And let's just say I was not in bed
0: by 10 p.m., Setting aside walk-up music, Baseball Music showcases a catalog both very old and very new, coloring American society as it ranges from 1858's The Baseball Polka to 2009's Jay-Z's and Empire's State of Mind. Baseball Music's catalog mines topics as wide-ranging as youngsters, as youngsters imagining themselves heroes of that archetypal hero's moment. The bottom of the ninth of the seventh game Score tied, two out, and you're at bat. Two, Meatloaf's rendition of Love's consummate moment, accompanied by a baseball play-by-play of some eponymous game. Two, Alabama's cheap seats, singing the joy of simply going to a ball game. Two, Woody, Buddy Johnson's celebration of social equity in Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball? So, to go back to the questions with which we began... What are some of the great baseball songs? What light do they shed on American culture? Avoiding the endless critical debate about good, better, and best, from which there is neither escape nor resolution, let's tour baseball music from its earliest stirrings down to the present's fractious times, ending on a note of hope. The oldest known baseball song is J.R. Blodgett's Baseball Polka. Blodgett, who was a member of the Niagara Baseball Club of Buffalo, and whose musical skills, according to his teammates, exceeded his baseball talent, Blodgett composed the song in September 1858 after a series of games between the Niagara Baseball Club and the Flower City Baseball Club of Rochester, New York. Here is the Baseball Polka. 20th century, the first baseball song of note was not a baseball song, or at least, not a song about baseball. From the 1902 Broadway musical The Silver Slipper, Tessie, You Are the Only, 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 a song sung by a woman to her beloved parakeet, Tessie, well, somehow, Tessie became the rallying cry of a group of loyal Boston American fans, who would later be renamed the Red Sox. Marching in from left field, and in those days there was no green monster, marching in from left field, the group had an informal band play the tune as the fans boisterously sang along. The fans were called the Royal Rooters. Their headquarters was the third-base saloon owned by avid Boston Americans fan Michael McGreevy, better known as Nuff Said McGreevy. Nuff Said earned his moniker as a result of how he ended barroom disputes about who was the better team— the Americans, or Boston's other team, known from time to time as the Doves, the Bees, and eventually the Braves, who, of course, decamped for Milwaukee in 1953 and now reside in Atlanta. When the debate got too hot, McGreevy would famously end the argument by slapping the bar and saying, Nuff said. The song's fame grew when, in 1903, the Royal Rooters took it to Pittsburgh, to support the Americans who were down three games to one in the first ever World Series. Rattled by the endless singing of the song, the Pirates blew that 3-1 lead and lost in eight games 5-3 as the Americans swept four games in Pittsburgh. Here is Billy Murray, a vaudeville star of the era, singing the original 1903 version of Tessie.
2: Buckling eye Tessie is a maiden With a laugh Tessie doesn't know The meaning of a Tessie is lots of fun And full of jazz. But sometimes we have A little quarrel we do Tessie always turns our head away
0: Showcasing baseball's enduring popularity, Tessie got a second life in 2004 when punk rock band Dropkick Murphys recorded an updated version in which any thoughts of parakeets were banished as the band celebrated the Royal Rooters and the Red Sox. It turned out to be fortuitous, for the superstitious, perhaps prophetic, because, propelled by their resurrected and updated fight song, The 2004 Red Sox broke the curse of the Bambino and won their first World Series since 1918. Here is the Dropkick Murphys version of Tessie singing, Tessie is the royal rooter's rally cry, Tessie is the tune they always sung, Tessie echoed April through October nights. Here are the Dropkick Murphys. Tessie is the
1: royal rooter's Rally cry Tessie is the tune They always sung Tessie echoed April through October night After serenade And stalled an The name And you Tessie is a maiden With the sparkling
2: eyes Tessie is a maiden With the love
0: Speaking of that 1918 World Series Boston win, it was also the first time ever that the Star-Spangled Banner was ever played at a baseball game. With World War I still raging, before a subdued crowd at Chicago's Comiskey Park, where the Cubs were hosting the Red Sox, in the bottom of the seventh inning of Game 1 of the World Series on September 5, 1918, a military band began to play, the Star-Spangled Banner. Red Sox third baseman, Frank Thomas, who was in the Navy, but on furlough to play in the series, well, Thomas snapped to attention, turned around to face the flag, and saluted. The crowd erupted in applause, singing the song, and a tradition was born. Oh, by the way, the Red Sox beat the Cubs that day, one to nothing, in an epic pitcher's duel between the Cubs, Hippo Vaughn, and the Red Sox ace, Babe Ruth.
2: Take me out to the ball game, take me out to the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack, I don't care if I ever get back. For it's root, root, root for the home team, if they don't win it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old.
0: Another song from the early 20th century ranks atop almost every listing of baseball songs. It comes in at number 8 on the National Endowment for the Arts and the Recording Industry of America's list of the top 365 songs of the 20th century and is frequently cited as the third most popular song in America after Happy Birthday and the National Anthem. Of course, I'm referring to Take Me Out to the Ball Game by Jack Norworth and Alfred Funtilzer. In an earlier episode, we explored how Norworth wrote the song for his lover-of-the-moment Trixie Fraganza, who, besides being a vaudeville star in her own right, was also a militant suffragist. The tune's extremely interesting backstory was first noted by George Bozowick in an article in Baseball, a journal of the early game. In any event, the song's putative... Feminist Origins will be the subject of that presentation I mentioned earlier on May 12th at 7 p.m. at the Jefferson Society, complete with original images and music from the era. Trust me, you won't want to miss the great vaudeville star Nora Bays, one of Norworth's love interests, singing, Over There. Baseball music also has its own novelty songs. Let's take a quick look at several. Dave Frischberg's Van Lingo Mungo claims most famous honors in this category. As Steve Wolf points out in the marvelous article in Memories and Dreams, the official magazine of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, Juliet first asked the question in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, What's in a Name? But it was Frischberg who answered the question in 1969, as he perused the recently issued Baseball Encyclopedia, the first one-volume collection of all the data about all the players who ever played Major League Baseball. Frischberg was fascinated by the rich melange of names from every ethnicity around the globe. He was particularly struck by the name Van Lingo Mungo, who actually pitched for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1930s and won 14 games for the World War II years Yankees in 1945. I verified it in my own copy of the Baseball Encyclopedia, a first edition of which I have lugged about for over 50 years. There's no accounting for some behavior. In the Internet era, it is a collector's item. Mungo's stats? Well, they can be found on page 2021. Who was Van Lingle Mungo? Well, as we just said, he really was a Major League pitcher. According to his February 14, 1985, obituary on the New York Times, Van Lingo Mungo, the pitcher whose sing-song name and fiery off-field antics delighted Brooklyn Dodger fans in the 1930s, almost as much as his erratic fastball frustrated them, died at his home in Pageland, South Carolina. He was 73 years old. In his 14 Major League seasons, from 1931 to 1945, 11 with the Dodgers and 3 with their arch-rival New York Giants, the right-hander, who was in the Army in 1944, led the National League in strikeouts with 238 in 1936 and compiled a career record of 120 victories and 115 defeats with an earned run average of 3.47. He also probably paid more in fines than any other player of his era, a total of $15,000 by his own estimate, or the equivalent of his top Major League salary for one season. It may have been his lilting name that first attracted Major League scouts, but it was his powerful arm that propelled him to the Dodgers in 1931 after the club's manager, Wilbert Robinson, saw him throw. Robinson was the first of a succession of managers, including Casey Stengel, who saw Mungo as a sure 20-game winner. But although he had two 18-victory seasons, one with 19 losses, Mungo never reached the 20-game mark and never quite lived up to the promise of his impressive Major League debut, a two-hit shutout of the Boston Braves, with 12 strikeouts. Although he once tied a Major League record by striking out seven batters in a row, he also led the league several times in walks. There was also the distraction of his combative personality on a team known as the Daffiness Boys. Once, when a Dodger outfielder, Long Tom Winsett, muffed the ninth inning fly that cost Mungo a victory, the pitcher stormed off the field, broke things in the clubhouse, and then strode directly to a telegraph office to send his wife, to send his wife a telegram that became legendary. Pack your bags and come to Brooklyn, honey. If Winsett can play in the big leagues, it's a cinch you can too. But Mungo's best chance for lasting fame may be his name. Common enough in Pageland, where Mungo's and Lingle's, his mother's family, where Mungo's and Lingle's abound, the name became the title of a popular song in 1970 written by Dave Frischberg. Known as the Dodger Blues, the song's lyrics consist entirely of names of old-time baseball players. That was Van Lingo Mungo, who inspired Frischberg. Frischberg organized the rich mix of names into a rhyming song to the bossa-nova rhythm of the song he originally intended to write. It became an instant and continuing baseball cult classic. But, more importantly for the American Tapestry Project, its use of names that at the time might have sounded exotic actually speaks to the power of sport to serve as a portal, a port of entry into American society. Frischberg's names are a glorious mix of all those late 19th, early 20th century immigrants that enriched American culture. It's practically a hymn, could be the theme song of the immigrant's tale. Rather than me mispronouncing names, here's the original Van Lingle Mungo.
1: Johnny Majeski, Johnny G., Eddie Juiced, Johnny Pesky, Thornton Lee, Danny Gardella, Van Lingo Mungo, Whitey Karowski, Max Lunier, Eddie Waitkus, and Johnny Vandermeer. Bob Estalella, Van
0: Lingo, 12 years later, in 1981, Terry Cashman, a former minor league baseball player, had another name-driven hit with Talkin' Baseball, which was originally entitled Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Just as we discovered in episode number 17 on the history of American Christmas carols, A Caroling We Will Go, there is a definite, a definite baby-boomer bias to baseball music. Much of baseball music was written in the latter half of the 20th century by aging boomers, nostalgically recalling their youth in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, just before the social convulsions of the counterculture. In fact, one can see in much of this music a yearning for a simpler time in the seeds of early 21st century neopopulism, which might be too much of a load for a simple song like Willie, Mickey, and the Duke, celebrating the three great stars of the 1950s to carry, pop music is a window into the popular mind. The music of 1968, in retrospect, should have been a signal of the new divide. Everyone remembers the hard rock, but it was also the year of Glen Campbell and the emergence of country pop. Listen closely. Cashman's opening stanza points in that direction. Here's Here's talkin' baseball.
2: The Whiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talkin' baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talkin' baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter. Barber and the Nuke They knew them all From Boston to Dubuque Especially Willie Mickey and the Duke Well Casey was winning Hank Aaron was beginning One Robbie going out One coming in Kiner and Midget Goodell The Thumper and Mel Parnell I was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazowski, Campanella, talking baseball. baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque,
0: especially with... I'm not certain anyone ever called anything Bob Dylan wrote and sang a novelty song, but his Catfish marked a departure from his more typical fare. Then again, nothing Dylan ever did or sang can be labeled typical. So let's say his Catfish, about Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Catfish Hunter, let's say Catfish caught me by surprise. Written in the mid-1970s with a rare co-author, Jacques Levy, and covered by Joe Cocker in 1976, Dylan never released his own version until 1991's The Bootleg Series Volumes. Its lyrics sing of Catfish's rebellion against baseball's restrictive reserve clause, as Catfish bolded from Charlie Finley's Oakland Athletics to accept a million dollars from George Steinbrenner's New York Yankees. Dylan reaches for a Woody Guthrie-esque populist atmosphere, hints of Maggie's farm in the line, he used to work on Mr. Finley's farm, but it's hard to fill the labor movement solidarity for millionaire jocks. In the working man's populist left genre, I much prefer his North Country blues. Still, Catfish sings. Catfish, million-dollar man, nobody can throw the ball like Catfish can. He used to work on Mr. Finley's farm, but the old man wouldn't pay. Packed his glove and took his arm, he just run away. I'm tempted to say there is a reason Dylan never released it, but you can judge for yourself. Here's... Catfish.
2: Lazy stadium night. Catfish on the mound. Strike three, the umpire says But I have to go back and sit down Cafe Million dollar man Nobody can throw the ball
0: For more about Dylan, listen to episode number 15 on WQLN's website. Paradise by the Dashboard Light Rates as either one of the greatest rock songs ever or as an unlistenable and seemingly unending oral torture depending upon who you're talking to. As for me, I land somewhere in the middle. I actually enjoyed it the first several times I heard it but I haven't listened to it in its entirety in years and years and years. The history behind its composition by Jim Steinman, its production by a veritable who's who of 70s-era rock nobility, including Meatloaf himself, also known as Michael Lee Day, Mark Moody Klingman, Ellen Foley, several members of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band and Todd Rundgen, well, all of that is beyond our interest here. But... Recruiting New York Yankees announcer Phil, the Scooter Rizzuto, to do the play-by-play backdrop to the two young lovers reaching love's consummate moment illumined by the dashboard light was a touch of genius. As the lovers found their peak, we're going to go all the way tonight, the Scooter intoned...
2: He's gonna slide in head first, here he comes, he's out.
0: As suggested earlier, commenting on Talkin' Baseball, baseball music is not only about sports and nostalgia. It also touches the deep chords, the deep threads in the American Tapestry Project. On the one hand, like Cashman's Talkin' Baseball, it hints at a desire to freeze-frame America in a nostalgic picture of its past. On the other... It points to baseball's role in healing freedom's fault lines, all those times Americans fumbled in living up to their ideals of liberty, equality, and opportunity. At its best, baseball music sings, as in the American Tapestry Project's fusion thread, of the ever-expanding we in We the People. It does this in at least two ways. One, it sings of assimilating immigrants into American culture— whether it's Katie Casey and Nellie Kelly, daughters of Irish immigrants, in Take Me Out to the Ball Game, early baseball was dominated by Irish immigrants, or Joe DiMaggio in Joltin' Joe DiMaggio, in the embedding of all those early 20th century immigrants whose names resonate in Van Lingo Mungo into American culture through the medium of baseball. Of course, it most memorably sings of mainstreaming African Americans into the American game in Chuck Berry's Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, Woodrow Johnson's Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball, and the Trenier's Say Hey, the Willie May Song, and many others down to Jay-Z's Empire State of Mind. Whether they live in Omaha, Nebraska, Erie, Pennsylvania, Northern New Jersey, or Queens, New York, part of the enduring loyalty of Americans of Italian ancestry to the New York Yankees results from the Yankees signing Joe DiMaggio in the 1930s. DiMaggio wasn't the first Italian-American to play Major League Baseball. That would be Western Pennsylvania's own Ed Abaticcio. But Jolton Joe was the first authentic Italian-American star giving the lie to his era's anti-immigration bigots. Recorded by Les Brown and his band of renown, Jolton Joe DiMaggio sings...
2: That's got us all aglow He's just a man and not a free Jolton Joe DiMaggio Joe, Joe DiMaggio We want you one ass. He tied the mark at 44 July the 1st, you know Since then he's hit a good 12 more Jolton Joe DiMaggio Joe, Joe DiMaggio We want you one ass. From coast to coast, that's all you'll hear of Joe, the one-man show. He's glorified the horse-hide sphere, joltin' Joe DiMaggio.
0: The contributions of African Americans to baseball lore go back much further than 1947's integration of Major League Baseball. They go back to the late 19th century with Moses, Fleetwood Walker, and into the early 20th century in the Negro Leagues. They include great stories about great players like, for example, Cool Papa Bell, a Hall of Fame shortstop who was, allegedly, so fast that, after flicking the light switch in his hotel room, he was in bed before the room got dark. These songs also speak to baseball's ability to break down barriers and to explode racist stereotypes. I remember once, when I was a young boy, hearing a neighbor utter some vile epithet against black people. She used different language. Thinking to my nine- or ten-year-old self, I thought, that can't be right, because Willie Mays isn't like that. To the extent that I have any sense of racial justice, it dates from that moment and speaks to the power of sport in American society. Speaking of Willie Mays, in 1955, a rhythm and blues group, the Traineers, released Say Hey, the Willie Mays song, celebrating the Say Hey kids' diamond exploits. It included some dialogue by Mays himself. Although the complete lyrics are not available, the song extols Mays' many talents, singing, He runs the bases like a choo choo train, swings around second like an aeroplane, his cap flies off when he passes third, and he heads home like an eagle bird. Say hey, say who, say Willie, say hey, say who, swinging at the plate. Here's the Willie Mays song Say hey.
1: go get it. What do you mean, go get it? Man, that ball's way in left field. I don't care what it's in. Willie plays all fields. Every time we come to the game, you're talking about Willie plays all fields. That's right. He Let's plays call, call Willie and ask him. Call him. OK, hey, Willie. Yes. Are you Willie Mays? Yes. Whose ball was that? Why was it? In left field. Well, that's Irving's ball. I what? told you that. You. Every time we come to the game, we got to talk about it. The next time, I'm going to sit in the grandstand. Say I'm... hey, fellas. What's your name? Say who? Say Willie say hey say who swinging at the plate say hey say who say willie that giant kid is great
0: but before willie mays there was jackie robinson and larry Doby. one can argue that the great civil rights progress of the 1950s and 1960s was spurred by the integration of professional sports the civil rights movement of course is much older than that but it finally found traction in the 1950s, and sports played no small part. Although this program is about baseball music, the integration of professional sports began in the National Football League in 1946 with Marion Motley and Bill Willis on Paul Brown's original Cleveland Browns. For most Americans, the Apocalypse day was April 15, 1947, when Jackie Robinson debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers followed quickly in July 1947 by the Cleveland Indians' Larry Doby. Almost immediately, artists and musicians celebrated. Also a musical hit by Count Basie and his orchestra, 1949's Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball by Woodrow Buddy Johnson's orchestra was, as Mark Preston says in the Baseball Hall of Fame magazine, a joyous tribute to a man who literally changed the face of the game its lyrics sing of jackie robinson but also of satchel page roy campanella and larry doby they ask did you see jackie robinson hit that ball it went zoom and crossed the left field wall yeah boy yes yes jackie hit that ball here's the buddy johnson version of did you see jackie robinson hit that ball oh. did you see jackie robinson
2: It hits that ball Sarap Page is mellow, So is Campanella. You and too But it's an artifact fact when Jackie comes to bat. The other team is through Boy Jack that
0: Bruce Pegg, Chuck Berry's biographer, said Barry's Brown eyed Handsome Man, was rock and roll's first Black Pride song. One of rock and roll's founding legends, Berry wrote the song in 1955 after visiting several minority areas in California and seeing a woman shouting at police who were arresting a Hispanic man. Berry released it in 1956 and in his 1957 album, After School Session. In 1950s America, the song created controversy because it implicitly sang of white women yearning for a brown-eyed handsome man the Venus de Milo, lost her arms wrestling for a brown-eyed man. Curiously, if you search for the song's lyrics today, you find lyrics from Barry's No Particular Place to Go, which was released in the early 1960s. Covered by a number of artists, Brown-Eyed Handsome Man was a hit for Buddy Holly, and it's under his name one finds Barry's original lyrics, singing of Black Pride and Jackie Robinson. Its final verse sings... Well, a two, three, the count, with nobody on. He hit a high fly into the stands. A rounding 30 was a heading for home. It was a brown-eyed, handsome man that won the game. It was a brown-eyed, handsome man. Here's the rock and roll legend himself singing Brown-Eyed Handsome Man in its 1957 original version.
1: Her mother told her, darling, go out and find yourself a brown-eyed, handsome man. Just like your daddy, he's a brown-eyed, handsome man. Venus was a beautiful lass, she had the world in the palm of her hand She lost both her arms in a wrestling match to beat a brown-eyed handsome man She fought and won herself a brown-eyed handsome man Two, three, the count, with nobody on, he hit a high fly into the stand Round the third, he was headed for home, it was a brown-eyed handsome man That won the game, it was a brown-eyed handsome man
0: In addition to singing a social justice, baseball music can be inspirational and healing. New York Yankee fan Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline has been played as the unofficial Boston Red Sox anthem since 1997, when Red Sox team employee Amy Toby played it because a friend had recently given birth to a daughter named Caroline. Years later, Diamond later revealed it's actually named as a birthday gift for Caroline Kennedy. Some fans loved it, others loathed it, but in 2002, after a Red Sox executive saw how fans sang it during the eighth inning, it was made a Red Sox tradition. It was cemented into Boston lore when, at the first game at Fenway Park after the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing, Neil Diamond himself came to Boston and sang it as part of the Boston Strong movement. Here's Diamond on that memorable day. Today,
1: in person, would you please welcome Mr. Neil Diamond?
2: Touch it, touch it. out. Touch it i <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. Oh, time right. right. never you're seems right. so, so, so good. I have been in my life. Right. to be.
0: When not sending social messages, most baseball music sings of the simple joy of going to a ball game, like Alabama's Cheap Seats, or Wax's Nostalgic, sometimes with a twinge of might-have-beens, like Bruce Springsteen's Glory Days, or Glories in a Long-Delayed Victory Finally Won, like Eddie Vedder's All the Way, or, at its best, like John Fogarty's bursting with optimism center field does all three at once. Ooh. Just like going to an Erie Seawolves game, where, for less than the cost of a tank of gas to go to Cleveland or Pittsburgh to see big league baseball, you can see real, high quality baseball played by young ball players whose names you do not know while sitting in seats literally within arm's reach of the field. Just like that, the country band Alabama's Cheap Seats celebrates the minor league experience. The players might not be the best, although some of them are. The beer's priced right, and we're not sure where the team sits in the standings. Still, it's baseball on a summer's eve. What else do you need? Released in 1993 in their album of the same name, Cheap Seats sings...
2: This town ain't big, this town ain't small, it's a little of both they say, our ball club may be minor league, we sit below the Marlboro Man, above the right wall, we do the wave all by ourselves. hey up a blind man could have made that call. We like our beer flat as candy We like our dogs with mustard and relish We got a great pitcher, what's his name? Well, we can't even spell it We don't worry about the pen as much We just like to see the boys hit it deep There's nothing like the view from the Chiefs
0: Let's circle back to a question I asked at the beginning. What are the best songs about women's softball? Now, you might ask, what has this to do with baseball music? Fair enough. But one of the trends in American culture since the 1970s has been the rise of women's sports, in particular, softball, basketball, and soccer. On a purely personal note, One of my great experiences was founding a local college's women's soccer team in the 1980s and leading them to the first-ever NCAA Division II Women's Final Four in 1988. In a similar vein, the rise of women's softball has been one of the great godsends to professional baseball. For as a Cleveland Guardians official asked me once, as we watched the then Cleveland Indians play I-don't-remember-exactly-who sometime during the 20-aughts, he asked me, look around the ballpark what do you see? Myopically, I replied, what do you mean? He said, look at all the women. Not just the mothers with their families and women with dates, although nowadays you don't actually know who brought who, but all the other women sitting in groups of two or three or four. He said, they're saving the game. They represent an increasing percentage of all baseball fans. If baseball survives the demise of the baby boomers in Gen X, it will be all the new women fans who save it. He attributed the boom, maybe boom-lit, in women fans to the rise of softball. There is now, he said, two or three generations of women who have played softball. They understand the game. They know what they're watching, and they become some of baseball's most ardent fans. I thought about what he said. I thought about a former female colleague of mine who knows more about baseball than any three or four guys you might choose, and decided he was right. Women's softball is booming. Hardly news, and it's an important part of baseball's future. But, interestingly enough, there does not appear to be any softball music or music specifically about the joys of playing softball. To the extent that there are any listings of softball music, Pat Benatar's Hit Me With Your Best Shot shows up most often. There is, however, a rich trove of softball walk-up music. In fact, there is a top 108 at flowsoftball.com, Topped by Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, Dangerous by the Ying Yang Twins, with Paranoid by Black Sabbath at number five, and Beyoncé's Partition at number six. (music) While we await softball music's arrival, what are the three best baseball songs not entitled Take Me Out to the Ball Game? To make my personal list, a song needs to have a hint of nostalgia, perhaps twinged with a trace of regret, it has to celebrate long-delayed victory's final arrival, and it has to look to the future with optimism and hope. Not many do all of that, but the 3 we'll hear next, while well, collectively they strike all the right notes. Bruce Springsteen's glory days tells of his chance encounter with an old friend who was a great high school baseball player. Having a beer together, they talk about old times. The friend, who... Unlike Springsteen, did not grow up to become a great rock star, nevertheless, the friend went to college, graduated, and lives a successful life, but a life that, perhaps, never quite recaptures the spirit, the glory, of his high school days. I need to tread carefully here, for Springsteen is respectful of his friend, but the song touches many of the same chords other great artists have played upon—fame's fleeting glory— the passing of youth and the yearning in middle age and older for one more taste of youthful passion. It's what F. Scott Fitzgerald meant in the Great Gatsby, describing Gatsby's nemesis, Tom Buchanan, as someone who, as someone who would drift on forever, seeking a little wistfully for the dramatic turbulence of some of some irrecoverable football game. Or most memorably, A. E. Houseman's to an athlete dying young, in which Hausman sings a song of relief that the athlete did not outlive his fame. Dying young, he never knew regret, nor yearning to be young again. houseman celebrates the athlete who died young, before his skills waned, memory of his exploits faded, and all he had left was stories about how good he'd been. Springsteen and his friend recall their youthful triumphs, but... While the friend wants to recapture a little of the glory of the old times, Springsteen wants to move on. Two friends, one stuck in time, the other moving forward knowing that, glory days, yeah, they'll pass you by. Springsteen sings. Jam lead singer Eddie Vedder, a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan, grew up in Evanston, Illinois. He first attended a Cubs game when he was six, and, in that idiosyncratic way only young baseball fans can have, rather than Ernie Banks, he idolized Cub outfielder Jose Cardinal. Later, in 2013, playing a concert at Wrigley Field, Vedder got the opportunity to play a game of catch with Banks. Much to his amazement, Banks asked if he could have Vetter's glove. Vetter, in one of those fairy tale stories that are part of baseball's charm, got it back in 2017 when he again played a concert at Wrigley Field. In between, in 2016, the North Side favorites ended their 108-year World Series drought by beating who else? The Cleveland Indians in seven games. The Guardians, knee Indians, in their long and mostly mediocre history turn up as the foil in any number of historic baseball moments. Maybe someday, as Vetter once sang about his beloved Cubs, they'll go all the way. The Cubs have since reverted to their historic level of ineptitude, but in 2016, they did indeed go all the way. It's now become their anthem, Singing.
2: It's just the game for I've seen other teams, and it's never the same. When you're born in Chicago, you're blessed and you're healed. The first time you walk into Wrigley Field, our heroes wear pinstripes, heroes in blue. Give us the chance to feel like heroes, too. Forever, will win. We should lose, we know. Someday will go out the way yeah. someday
0: will go the way There are literally hundreds, probably thousands, of baseball songs. Today's primer surfed the topic, but a deeper dive would find other nuggets like Peter, Paul, and Mary's right field, Kenny Rogers' The Greatest, The Ballad of a Vichiro Suzuki, and Mrs. Robinson, in which Simon and Garfunkel wonder, where his. Joe DiMaggio Gone. Which, although it's from the late 1960s, seems to have inspired a quarter century's worth of baseball downer songs like Don't Beat My Ass with a Baseball Bat by the Goo Goo Dolls, Home Run by Joe Nichols, in which the singer whines, Life's been coming at me like a fastball, it's time I hit a home run, and Baseball Bill by Echo and the Bunnyman, which uses baseball jargon for a, a nihilist rant. Maybe it's age but I'll take the spirit of the song ranked on just about every top 10 baseball songs list as either number two and no worse than number three, John Fogarty's Centerfield, which one critic said combines the best of music in the national pastime, and another opined Fogarty's Centerfield is the oral equivalent of Mays's catch in the 1954 World Series. The catch, as we noted, off the bat of the Indians' Vic Wertz, is considered the greatest in baseball history. Fogarty, who was the lead singer for Creedence Clearwater Revival, recorded Centerfield after an almost 10-year hiatus in his career. Originally only a minor hit as a single, Fogarty included it in his 1985 album, Centerfield. If Take Me Out to the Ball Game is baseball's national anthem, then Fogarty's Centerfield is its designated hitter. Most people assume Centerfield refers to Willie Mays, since Fogarty grew up in California, but he says, growing up listening to his father tell stories in the late 40s and early to mid-50s before the Giants moved to San Francisco, he focused on Mickey Mantle and Duke Snyder. The song's title comes from a sense he had ever since he was a little boy that the Centerfielder was the guy on the team. As Fogarty says, the center fielder always seemed to hit all the home runs and was the rock star of the team. The song also references Chuck Berry's brown-eyed, handsome man as a way of honoring Jackie Robinson, because, as Fogarty says, the most important thing in our culture at the time, that is, the 1940s and 1950s, the most important thing in our culture at the time was breaking the color barrier. It took baseball far too long, but it's good they finally did and for all he endured and how he held himself up, he's someone anyone could look up to. With its optimism, its put-me-in-the-game-coach spirit, Centerfield sings of that hope characterizing both spring training and new student orientation. I always thought orientation was one of the happiest parts of the college year because, just like spring training, it was full of hope, no one was throwing curveballs or giving tests, and everyone was a winner. As we all know, Eventually the tests come, and they start throwing curveballs. But Fogarty sings of the spirit with which that moment must be met when he croaks in his inimitable voice. Baseball music, the sounds of the season, singing, if only we can listen, singing of those common objects of our love binding all Americans together. Play ball. The American tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up, to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Past episodes can be found on WQLN's website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeseerie.org. Once again, thank you for listening.